Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. What took you so long? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Here's to You, our follow-up discussion on Metal Gear Solid V, Ground Zeroes, from 2014. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Additionally, a trigger content warning, we're going to talk about this game's depiction of rape and child sexual abuse today at the end of this episode, which I will announce when we get to and play a sound clip, so if anyone wants to bounce before we discuss that, feel free. start today by running down the other missions available to the player in Ground Zeroes. Most of these missions are canonical to the story, with (laughs) Snake and Kaz running operations against Camp Omega in the months preceding the Ground Zeroes incident. In them, they reveal a lot of backstory and mystery surrounding Skullface and Camp Omega. The first mission is Eliminate the Renegade Threat, which takes place on December 3rd, 1974. Essentially, Big Boss is tasked with tracking down two CIA guys who were known for doing war crimes in Laos, you know, over in Southeast Asia. They are known as the Eye and Finger, and if you actually catch up to them, uh, these characters will basically seem like they're afraid of something or running from something, which is theoretically Skullface or Cypher. Um, And then... I don't know if there's much else to say about this mission. It's essentially two guys you have to go find. You can either kill them or you can extract them. Um, And if you extract them, I do believe they become available in the Phantom Pain. Um, And then otherwise, the other things of note about this mission is that the person who pays MSF for Big Boss to do this operation is the KGB. And then uh, this all takes place on a cloudy day, which is distinct from the nighttime and rainy setting that we see for the main Ground Zeroes mission. That's what I remember it for. So yeah, I, I I mean I remember it, but it's not it's you know it's the problem of having a bunch of side quests in the same area. They bleed together a little bit where there's not a whole lot of. I remember a lot of the backstory stuff of Cos uh, talking about the these guys, but that's all I really remember for it. And then I think I just killed them. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I did distract them because I think I did have them in. I I, don't know, I think I got everybody I could get in my first Phantom Pain playthrough of at Mother Base. So mm-hmm. I had a, I had a huge staff. Yeah, and I think this is setting up what's going on in the Phantom Pain, where the side ops are going to take place in um, basically the same settings as you're running your major uh, main mission ops. Yeah. Um, but then they're just kind of laid out with a different, um, you know, geography or different enemy patrol or something like that, different weather, that kind of stuff. It's what you would do. I mean, these are such big areas. It's a shame. I think they could use them more, honestly. There's there's more areas. There's some areas in Afghanistan in particular that like, don't get used very often. Mm-hmm. But there's other ones that get reused from different angles, so they're made to seem like different... We talked about that. Different locations, different buildings. Mm-hmm. Anything that, that makes the playable space feel larger than it is is good. Yeah. Because it's supposed to be... He's supposed to be going over all of Afghanistan, not like two square miles, which is what's actually playable. So it... it I like it. I, it's a, it's a clever way to if you do it correctly, you can you can really um, make it. Like I said, make a game feel larger than it is, mm-hmm. which is better than making it seem smaller than it is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The second side op is Intel Operative Rescue, and this takes place on December seventh, nineteen seventy four. And that Intel Operative you're trying to rescue? Why? It's none other than Kojima himself, and this is actually a continuation of his character from Peace Walker. Um, if you recall, you can grab him out of the back of a truck um, somewhere in Costa Rica, 
and he joins your um, R&D team uh, at that point in Peace Walker. So he is the Intel operative that actually went into Camp Omega and gave Snake and Kaz the info on the eye and the finger from the first side mission we talked about. Um, this is actually a helicopter mission. Um, you are in the Hind D, and basically you are there to provide cover fire for um, Kojima's escape, essentially. Um, there is a point where you do have to kind of get out and get him, you know, into the chopper. Um, but otherwise, this is pretty much, you know, learning how to use your helicopter, um, using its weapons, how to target stuff, and kind of get used to the motion of uh, being in that helicopter and fighting. You actually do fight another helicopter during this mission as well. Um, so you get a little bit of fun with that. And this is all set in terms of like twilight or like pre-dusk. Um, so it has kind of that like sunset uh, backdrop for the mission. So visibility isn't high, but it isn't as bad as it would be at nighttime. When you complete the mission and you, you know, get Kojima back in the chopper and you give him his glasses, um, he will say, uh, what took you so long? Um, that is his standard response. And that's actually going to be something that Kaz says when you save him in the Phantom Pain. But if you S-rank the mission, um, he, uh, Kojima will say, Snake, that was perfect. Um, so you get a little kudos from the creator of this game series. I like that they go out of their way to let you know what, what style of glasses he is wearing. That's fun. He loves his brands of sunglasses. Uh, you would know this from his Twitter as well. Yes, he loves them. The third mission is Classified Intel Acquisition, and this one takes place on December 21st, 1974. This time, the Pentagon is the client, and they basically want to send Boss in to Camp Omega because they have no idea what the fuck is going on in there. <laughs> um, that's because uh, XOF, Skullface's unit, and still, loose, still pretty much affiliated with Cypher and Zero, were essentially posing as the CIA, but they were the ones themselves that kind of turned Camp Omega into a black site, synonymous with how we think of Gitmo today. Um, in this mission, you have to, um, there's an undercover agent who has acquired some intel, and it's Big Boss's job to extract the intel. Um, you enter this mission by a truck um, that kind of comes in around the perimeter, and you have the option of choosing when to actually jump out of the truck. You can let it take you basically all the way around the camp, or you can jump out early and make your way on foot. Um, basically, you have to track down this undercover agent who gives you the location of a cassette tape that has the intel that the Pentagon is looking for. Um, and then when you go and extract that cassette tape, which is up in the like highest watchtower of the base, um, there's a security camera placed right over it, and it basically triggers an alert, and you basically have to fight your way out of the base um, before you can extract yourself by a chopper. And then this, the weather for this mission is a sunny day, um, which is, I think, the only one that's really set in like the middle of the day time with sun, like providing full visibility. It took me a long time, so I have strong memories of the sunny, of uh, running around in like the heat of the afternoon, shooting people in the feet, so they <laughs> throwing uh, uh, ammo clips around to distract people, and then punching them in the back of the head. That's always fun. That's one of the things I like most about this game is. Um, it's a thing that Dishonored eventually kind of developed into also where like you can be non-lethal without being like really deliberate. You can just run up and take, take people out quickly, which is, I suppose, how real life works. I don't know. I don't really know that much about. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always fun in, in video games when you knock someone unconscious and you're like, yeah, they'll be fine. They're not dead. It's like they're, that they're unconscious for several hours. Like, He's fine. Nothing's wrong. Yeah, CT does not exist in this game. In these games, uh, it's, it's the Batman um, thing. It's like, ah, oh, he's fine, Robin. I ran him over. I hit him with my car, and it, and it electrocuted him and threw him into a wall. He's fine. It's it's you know it's very much comic book logic where if you don't deliberately kill somebody or basically if you don't use a gun, they're not dead. Yeah, everyone's fine. They'll recover in a little bit. Yeah, and there is like a solid wave once you trigger that alert with the security camera in the watchtower. Um, there is a solid wave of enemies you actually have to defeat before uh, Morpho will set down. Um, you have to take out some troops and I think possibly a tank or an ATV as well. So um, it's it's a pretty fun one. It's one that's if you think of all these side missions as kind of prepping you for the Phantom Pain, yeah. this is the one that's kind of training you to do shootouts. Yep. Um, like locate intel, but then shit's gonna go awry, and you have to actually fight. This is not a stealth mission in the end. Um, it's not tactical espionage action. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm just imagining Kaz being like, "Boss, stop sending us all these brain dead soldiers. We can't do it. <laughs> They've all lost too much oxygen to their brains. They're just vegetables now. Why are you doing this?" 
So the last uh, canonical mission is Destroy Anti-Air Emplacements, which takes place on January 9th, 1975. This time it's a sunny morning. Yeah. Um, and Snake needs to destroy, I believe, three anti-air emplacements around the base. There are several others. You know, when I'm bored, sometimes I try to take them all out. Um, and the point is you want to uh, destroy the anti-air emplacements uh, so that a Marine Air Ground Task Force can be landed on the base um, so that they can follow up on your previous mission of getting intel about what was happening at Camp Omega and actually have troops go through the base and, fit, you know, do whatever they need to. Um, during this mission, you're basically on, like, full alert status, which isn't, like, combat status, but basically all the troops are heightened. There are active enemy patrols. Um, sirens are kind of going off. So um, this is, like, one of the more... Um, I wouldn't say difficult, but it's just like you have to be a little more aware than, say, the main mission where most enemies are on standard patrol and not actively looking for you out of the gate. Yeah. So um, the story behind this mission is that after you destroy the anti-air emplacements, um, two unknown aircraft show up on the radar. They take out that Marine Air Ground Task Force unit, and then they proceed to basically firebomb the island, and Snake has to get out of there before... Um, they actually begin that. I think you're given like a two or three minute timer or something like that to get out of there. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad time for that. Oh yeah, you're never really in fear. It's mostly about the story that's going on um, and getting that. And we'll find out later that the cipher was behind the airstrikes um, because the bombers they used are Western, presumably American fighters. Um, and basically it's trying to basically say, you know, Cypher, XOF, Skullface, Zero, whatever. We're using Camp Omega as this place to do, you know, torture, interrogation, all this nasty shit. Um, and then they're trying to basically erase the memory of that um, by basically firebombing the island. You do get a tape at the end of this mission, and that's the tape that kind of gives you the most information about a Camp Omega and then also kind of Skullface's plan about having wanting to take out first Big Boss and then later Zero. Um, so uh, this is like... I wouldn't call it like super essential, but this is probably the one that you get the most like story knowledge out of out of all the other side missions. The last two missions um, we're going to talk about are non-canonical. Um, the first one is Deja Vu, and this was initially a PlayStation exclusive, and you had to unlock this by finding all the XOF patches we talked about in the previous episode. This mission is OSP because it is trying to recreate the Shadow Moses incident here at Camp Omega. Essentially, there is uh, eight memories that are kind of hidden in across the base, little things that will remind you of um, things that you experienced in Shadow Moses, like a security camera or a helipad with two spotlights that, uh, you know, kind of crisscross each other and you have to run in the middle of them. Uh, there's a quote-unquote missing uh, what's it called? Missing uh, memory. It just looks like a blank spot in your iDroid. And this turns out to be a little Easter egg for the Psycho Mantis fight because um, you have to go turn out the electricity yep. in the base. Um, and that is a blackout. Um, and that's effectively the hideo screen from the original Psycho Mantis battle in MGS1. There is all sorts of like MGS. I hate to use this word just because it has a lot of baggage in our pop culture discourse, but just Easter eggs. Um, like there's all sorts of flags flying around that have like various Foxhound logos from over the years. Um, the spots where Paz and Chico were located in the main mission, um, there are prisoners there. And if you go and try to free those prisoners, they both die of Fox die, um, which is, you know, kind of fun. Um, there is uh, our good friend Johnny Sazaki uh, shitting in a porta potty on the base. And then if you do go into a combat mode, um, instead of playing like the Ground Zeroes or MGSV music, they play the MGS-1 music as well. So there's a little side mission or side game as part of this one. Basically, um, in one of the weapons depots in the admin building, there is a uh, assault rifle that has a flashlight um, that can erase logos. It's very similar to what Skullface did to erase the XOF logo on the chopper in the main mission. And basically, you have to go around and find various Metal Gear game logos all across the base. Um, and you, you use the flashlight to kind of erase them. And you want to erase them all um, to unlock the achievement. Um, if you go and find the canonical game logos, um, you'll usually get Kaz imitating lines from them if you <laughs> call in the radio. 
Um, but if you go up to like the non-canonical games, um, which includes Revengeance, at least at this point, um, Kaz will just be like, huh, don't know what that one is, um, which is kind of cute in its own way. Uh, some of these logos are also like very, like they're just like printed on a wall and hard to miss. Yeah. But a couple of them are also like on the inside of a ceiling, inside a watchtower and stuff. Like you have to like be looking your full range of vision. They're not all just like sitting in front of you, so to speak. It took me a while to find them. I, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to complete this mission, there is a vent in the admin building that you crawl through, which will activate some of that like field mice, Alaskan field mice audio from Kaz or Master Miller, as he was known in MGS1. Um, and uh, crawling through that vent will end the mission. Um, I forgot to mention there's also um, the Watchtower or, like spotlights have like the Fox logo on them. And there's certain black circles like along the map that you can like point the spotlight at. Um, the circle and it'll be like the Kojima Productions logo and Kaz will say something snarky about that. Um, and then after you complete this mission, there's actually a quiz because who doesn't love a quiz after completing a sneaking mission? Um, but uh, if you answer, I think it's 20, 10 questions about Metal Gear Solid, um, you will unlock, if you answer all 10 correctly, you will unlock the classic Solid Snake and Gray Fox skins for this game. I, it wasn't difficult. I remember that. Oh, no. It, they they aren't hard at all, um, especially for people who say do a Metal Gear Solid podcast. <laughs> um, and then if you play with one of those skins that you unlocked in this mission, um, the troops in Camp Omega are going to be designed to look like the Genome Soldiers. And the Fox Die Prisoners that I mentioned earlier actually become Donald Anderson and Kenneth Baker, um, the DARPA chief and the arms tech president. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to let you talk about the last one because for obvious reasons. <laughs> what if ride mission? It's, I don't know. It, it doesn't. I think it definitely. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I played it. I think I read it this game. It wasn't immediately when it came out, but I think I read it right around when this was released. And it was the thing I wanted to do the most. Yeah. Jamey Vu and Deja Vu are the two I wanted to do because they're the two coolest ones. Yeah. You just run around as ride and uh, you can't use his sword. I remember that. You have to use a gun, which is uh, that's not revengeance, actually. <laughs> there's, a, I think it's like suppo- no, I wouldn't call it fan service, but there's like what, in the prep for the mission, a big boss goes up and picks up his katana from yeah, uh, revengeance and hands it to Raiden, and he says something like, "No, I'll go with this," and then he chooses the gun instead. Coward! You would never use gun. He would never use a gun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Find evidence of Raiden using a gun. You can't. There's definitely none of that in Metal Gear Solid Two. But uh, there's some fun, uh, not I don't want to say Easter eggs, but like the music for this scene is uh, set to Revengeance music, which is fun. Um, Kaz will say stuff like Kawabunga, which Georgie said quite a bit in Revengeance, and some other lines. And the helicopter that Snake comes in on has the Platinum Games logo. Um, So they're having fun. And this was an Xbox-only exclusive at launch. Um, This was only available for Xbox, while the Deja Vu was only available to PlayStation. Now, if you play it on either platform, these missions come patched in, um, just like initially with the game. You had to unlock them with the XOF patches, as I mentioned earlier. But now, if you get a copy of Ground Zeroes or the complete edition, um, you will have these missions to start off with. I I unlocked them. I had to unlock them with XOF patches because this is, I want to say, May or June 2014, because I remember where I was living, and it was not where I was living when the game released. So I had moved... I only played it the one time, so I definitely played them both in that week or so I had it. Um, it's funny because you don't even like like this mission. You just you just kill people. <laughs> yeah. So uh, real quickly, like essentially we're in a snatcher or thing yeah, situation, yeah. which, you yeah. know, snatcher is a Kojima game. The thing is one of his favorite movies. What? Um, and basically <laughs> never heard of that one before. Uh, but basically, uh, th- the various soldiers, some of them have been taken over, which you can tell by, I think, either with your uh directional microphone or not mic uh the binoculars yeah um so you can mark which ones are enemies um and then basically you have to kill those guys um and i think near the end of the mission it turns into kind of a swarm where you're just being like constantly attacked by them and you just have to keep taking them out kind of thing so um playing to kojima strengths and of course it's a lot of fun writing content which you know we always appreciate on this podcast oh and uh in case people i feel like this is one people don't know deja vu People know what that means. Jamais vu is things you don't know. Like deja vu is the sensation of like, I know this somehow. Like this is something from my past that I'm reliving. Jamais vu is, is the opposite of that. When you're in a situation that is completely foreign to you, like you have no, 
you don't recognize anything and it's frightening. That's the the joke they're going for there. La di da, Mr. Frenchman over here. The ride stuff is a, is a uh, future that has not yet come to pass and it's terrifying. Which mm-hmm. theoretically also is deja vu, but it's very much uh yeah understood. Remember this. <laughs> Hey, it's remembering some guys, uh, Metal Gear Edition. I do love in these. Two, I love in these two missions specifically, like Psycho Cause, like like cha- Cause channeling other characters and, and sounding insane. That's always fun. it's always fun to get him. Yeah, being weird. It's not as much of it in this game, sadly. Snake, you can forget about civil liberties where you're headed. God only knows what they'd do to you if you got caught. Do not let that happen. The Cubans leased the land to the U.S. as a gesture for helping them gain independence from Spain. The deal remains in effect until both countries agree to dissolve it or the U.S. abandons the land. That's why America still operates the base even after La Revolución. Problem is, it's leased land. Meaning it isn't American soil, so the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply there. That allows them to withhold its civil rights protections. Yeah, that's Uncle Sam's excuse. The area was originally only for detaining refugees from countries like Cuba and Haiti. But a few years ago, the CIA and its likes started using it as a black site. Enemies of the state are renditioned there and subjected to extreme forms of interrogation. You can bet Cypher had a hand in that. Cuba is the setting for MGSV Ground Zeroes, and we'll unpack that next. We've tangentially touched on Cuba several times in our coverage already. When discussing the boss back in our MGS3 coverage and Che Guevara during our MGS Peacewalker coverage. Our based comrades 90 miles off the coast of Florida fermented a Marxist revolution in 1959, with Fidel Castro emerging as leader afterwards. Our MGS storyline creeps in thereafter. The Cuban Missile Crisis was averted because the West returned Sokolov back to the USSR in exchange for them pulling out of Cuba. And even before that, the Bay of Pigs fiasco was used as an alibi for the boss. She wasn't there, but it was used to explain where she was during her coma following her spaceflight in 1961. Cuba would again be a narrative linchpin in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, wherein at separate times both Hot Coldman and Zadornov targeted Cuba with Peace Walker's nukes in order to set blame on America and turn the Cold War into a hot one. In these Cold War era games, Cuba has been a political football much like it was in our real world. American leaders and media perpetuates an image of a hostile Cuba that threatens our freedoms, all the while the CIA runs secret ops against the island nation, doing anything it can to justify overt military action against it or assassination of its leader. Reagan labeled Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism in 1982, Uh, Cuba as a communist state lasted longer than Ronald Reagan did, which is a huge W for the country. Bill Clinton would further codify and extend the embargo as well, and the Alian Gonzalez controversy arose during his presidency. The official stance of the podcast Census Frontiers is that Reagan can eat shit. Yes, he absolutely can. And while I'm no fan of President Obama... One of the few unconditionally good things he did was reestablish diplomatic ties to Cuba, easing travel and import restrictions, removing them from the terrorism list, reopening embassies, and actually visiting the nation to meet with Raul Castro. November 2016 saw the death of Castro, and Trump would end up rolling back basically everything Obama did. Biden has done a little to redo what Trump undid, but hardly much really. At this point, our listeners can understand the context of Cuban existence in this neoliberal world. Cuba has a much higher literacy rate and infinitely better health care and health outcomes in the U.S., all while being considered an impoverished nation by capitalist indicators and measures. The poverty can be blamed on one thing most of all, the American embargo and sanctions on Cuba, preventing it from being a player in the international community within a global economic framework. As we said before, if the U.S. labels you as an enemy, then basically 100-plus countries will just take the U.S. aside so they don't make the U.S. mad, leaving quote-unquote rogue nations like the USSR and Venezuela to do business with Cuba. This is why American media can so easily craft these axis of evil narratives, because these countries necessarily have to align because of the U.S.'s imperial efforts. Well, it's... Again, again, the 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 grand joke of neoliberalism is that these countries, it's not even necessarily that these countries 
can or have been communists. It's that they d- deny the CAA minimal rights. That's what it is. Like the United States does not actually care about political ideology. We don't care about like if, if Venezuela was communist, but still let us drill in, in their borders, we would have perfectly normal relations with them. The only thing you can do that actually makes America angry is uh, deny them mineral access. Like that's all they, that's all this country really cares about. I mean, uh, there's some places that, that we would like to train our soldiers and, and develop new. I mean, that's what that's what we use the Middle East for is like a training ground. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think the main foreign policy goal of America is extractivism. Yeah. Um, they are there to extract resources, um, no, whatever it may be. And the reason that it ends up just lining up is because, you know, communist nations tend to nationalize um, yeah. their resources and industries, um, which make it harder for American businesses to get into them. As I've always said, though, uh, it, any idea that the United States is somehow a moral police of the world is is a farce. Like we pretend to do that. We say that to voter. Like the, this country will say that we're policing the world out of like a benevolent. Like we, we can't even be like benevolent liberal over overlords, which is all you know. It's problematic in its own right, but at least it's some sort of ideology. Um, no, it's really just like like the best example is that we willingly deal with Saudi Arabia because they allow us, you know, to export oil. Like they allow us to drink their milkshake. Any country that was trying to live up to the purported uh, ethical standards of the United States would not deal with Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I, you don't want to generalize, but I think I don't think it's I don't think it's too much a generalization to say the House of Saud is evil. Yeah. Oh, easily. <laughs> At the very least, maybe you can stay away, stay away from language like that. But it's a negative influence on the world stage mm-hmm. in, in any in basically every possible way. But the but the U.S. government doesn't care because they allow us to drill. They allow it. Well, they, they allow us good. They give us good deals. The deals are so good. We love the deals. Yeah, so that's really what it is here. And that's that's Cuba has gotten the brunt of our. We've been bullying them for about a hundred years now because they don't give us every. Because it all it's close. It's about as close as any foreign country. Any country. It's the closest country to America that doesn't share a border with America. Mm-hmm. And it just makes us angry. Like hey. We control your fate. How dare you do any kind of like? How dare you talk? To, I don't know. Just it's just this like this this bully mentality we have. This, but really, if if they still uh, sent us sugar and and gave us great deals on all of our on all their minerals and all their uh, goods and stuff, that we wouldn't be. The the communism is not. They don't care that much. At least especially now. <laughs> Maybe in the sixties they actually gave a shit, but that was before history ended. Now all we have is. A slow and brutal fight for resources in a dying world. Hooray. <laughs> for this game, we can zoom in on uh, Camp Omega, a U.S. naval prison facility on the island of Cuba, but carved out for the U.S. military. It, of course, is an analog for the real-world Guantanamo Bay base, called Gitmo popularly, and was a regular political topic during the Obama presidency in which this game was developed. The existence of the base predates the revolution by half a century, and its continued existence has been a sore spot with Cubans, rightly so. What was once just a tactical holding ground for the U.S. Navy has also become an eye on the communist country just off U.S. shores, and post-9-11, a black site for disappearing people in the war on terror. In a way, both Gitmo and Camp Omega are phantoms, the ghost of the U.S. military in a communist land, and what happens there stays there, and not in a fun Las Vegas way. It's a black hole for human rights and a dungeon for indefinite containment. Speaking of, well before 9-11, Gitmo was used as a place to house refugees from both Cuba and Haiti, which is what the east and west encampments of Camp Omega are ostensibly set up for in this game. The narrative goes that this U.S. Navy base had been commandeered by Skullface's XOF unit for Cypher to do its extrajudicial interrogations and disappearances, and in the side missions we described earlier, Cypher employed Snake and MSF to clear the field so they could bomb the base and wipe away all evidence of illegal activity. And despite all of the good things Obama did with regards to Cuba, he did fail, or lie, in his intentions to close Guantanamo Bay during his presidency. He signed executive orders in January 2009 to get the ball rolling on shutting it down, but would end up postponing them, and in May of that year, the U.S. Senate voted to keep Gitmo open indefinitely. 
In March 2011, he issued an executive order permitting the ongoing indefinite detention happening there, and the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012 would allow the practice of indefinite detention of terrorists to continue as well. And in February 2021, Joe Biden said he plans to close the base before he leaves office, which I'll just believe it when I see it. An important thing about Gitmo is it's it's a black site we know about, which mm-hmm. means it's probably honestly not even, compared to the ones we don't know about, but probably the stuff that goes on there is a lot tamer. Because they're, I mean, I don't think it's even like a, a shock to people to to know that. I think most major American cities have some sort of CAA black side of them. And the things they do there are probably the most vicious, flagrant violations of international prisoner law that you can think of. No one has ever said the CAA is too good to do this. So, you know. Uh, I think it was 2015, The Guardian broke a huge story about a uh, Chicago Police Department yes. black site in Chicago. Um, and they I think they even said like they had people from Gitmo come in and help them set up um, the entire infrastructure, which, again, speaks to the military police relationship in this country. Yeah. Uh, and the the game is trying to invoke a lot of war on terror visuals um, in this time frame as well. We see bags over prisoners' heads to invoke Abu Ghraib, uh, something we saw all the way back in Metal Gear Solid 3 with uh, Big Boss's torture. And um, the last thing I want to mention about Camp Omega is that the original plan was to have Camp Omega be playable as part of the Phantom Pain, um, but that was eventually scrapped for various reasons. I kind of glad it wasn't because it feels I, I love this area like just doing this i'm remembering a lot of fun places in camp omega and like just how well designed it is but i also don't feel like i feel like it um phantom pain kind of outgrew it mm. like i don't i really don't think it was necessary to return i don't know what you would have done yeah i i think i like the, the, you can maybe come up with something but i think ultimately it works better this way especially how meticulously the game pays attention to like space and time and yeah. travel distance and stuff, it would not make sense to jump from the seashells to Cuba every now and then. So um, you'd also think Big Boss or Venom Snake, whatever, would probably not want to be just running operations um, in Cuba at that point yeah, in time, yep. given everything else going on. Yeah, I've never known choice. Where I was born, the language I speak, I've never had the freedom to choose for myself. So here's where the fun begins. We get to talk about Skullface, voiced by James Horan. Liquid Ocelot crawled so Skullface could run. We're going to do our Skullface deep dive here so we can track his plot through his death near the end of The Phantom Pain. We'll touch on some of the thematic stuff too, but I really want to save the bigger discussion on the theme of language for later once we get to the vocal cord parasites. The name Skullface itself is as open and shut as a Kojima name gets. His face has been melted off, so all you see is the skull. He'll lend that name to the XOF strike force, the Skulls, who we'll see once we get to Afghanistan in the Phantom Pain. I think that the skull imagery is important, though. It reflects Skullface has lost part of his humanity, the part we present to each other in efforts to build relationships and form community. With that stripped away, we are just left with a phantom of a man, the makings of a human, but none of the being. Where I think Skullface's meme prevails in the Metal Gear saga is the symbology of Outer Heaven. The symbol for Outer Heaven from the MSX games all the way to Outer Haven in MGS4 has involved a Skull logo. Skullface injecting his lust for revenge into the system is one of the last missing ingredients from turning Snake's noble MSF operation into its eventual war crime factory of Outer Heaven. Even in defeating Skullface, the unit comes to embrace his nihilistic philosophy, something alluded to in missions following his death. Skullface doesn't have any other names really that we know of. Ground Zeroes doesn't even really name him in the main story or cassettes. He's just referred to as Agent, which if you remember Avengers 2012 is Coulson's first (laughs) name, according to Tony. In a tape, Code Talker also uses the name Biligana, but it's unsure if that refers to Skullface or Zero. The word Biligana means white man or colonizer in Navajo. Aside from the face, Skullface is depicted in a trench coat and a 10-gallon hat, a cowboy cosplay of sorts, but something different than Ocelot's cosplay. He also carries a sawed-off lever-action rifle, and in The Phantom Pain is depicted with a Kato mask. The vest he wears contains an XOF patch, he has big snakeskin boots, which symbolism, I guess, 
and an old jailer's ring of keys on his belt. This zoot suit look of Skullface is supposed to invoke the Pachucos, groups of Chicano men and later women in the South and Southwest U.S. who rejected assimilation in white Anglo culture. The look was supposed to be a caricature of the American, and I think the telling quote comes from Octavio Paz, a Mexican poet and Nobel Prize winner in literature, who described Pachucos as having lost their whole inheritance, language, religion, customs, belief. This lines up exactly with Skullface's backstory. Entirely with it, actually. Uh, Skullface, to me, is almost... I don't feel like you... It's weird to say you don't get enough time with him because you get a 15-minute monologue from him at one point. <laughs> I think part of it's Zero not being in the game, so you just don't get... Which is by design. It's the absence of Zero. It's, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. back to ones or whatever the fuck Big Boss was talking about. Uh, <laughs> just that, but he gets... He's had, it's a one-sided feud that he has because his feud is not with Snake. So he's not... I guess what I'm getting at is this is the flaw in not having your game take place in one small area over a couple of days so you don't really get to... It's it's what makes Snake Eater work so well is all the characters are in the same place bouncing off of each other and, and interacting and you don't really get that. Uh, Skullface, Skullface has uh, Lex Luthor in Batman vs Superman disorder to a much you know, not bad as bad degree, but where, he, where he's just talking to nobody, he's just monologuing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that movie famously, I think you could edit every other character out of every Lex Luthor scene, and they would not change the scene because he's not talking to people. <laughs> he's not talking to other characters. He's just talking. He's just monologuing mm-hmm. to nobody. Skullface does that a little bit, but it's they're very good monologues, so I like him. But yeah, he's he's not. I feel like he's not quite like look at Ocelot is performing for Snake and like for the Patriots and but he still interacts with other characters in the game sometimes. Yeah. Maybe it's just not getting the big fight. Maybe that's what I'm getting at because that's you know that's the medical thing. You get the big fight with the villain. Yeah, I think and I think they will get to it when we get to the end of the story, but like they've specifically talked about how they didn't want Skullface to be a boss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting choice. Which makes him more like a hot coldman. A little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's a great. And like I told you when we did Peace Walker, I thought that there was a chance that Skullface might be hot, cold man, you know, born again or something like that. Hey, I think there's two, there'd be two reasons for you would, you would do that. One is to really hammer home the fact that, that like none of these, none of these people are anything close to Big Boss. Like he would just obliterate them. There would be no contest because he's the world's greatest soldier. But B, I think, I think it's more. I, I if we, as we talked about, I think this era of the Metal Gear games is focused much more on systems, on on systems of control, on like systemic issues with world politics. Namely, that the United States is is a is a moral actor on the world stage who is seeking to gather as much resources as it possibly can and destroy anyone who tries to stand in its way. So it's really, I think that's more what they're going for is is like. These are not individuals like, you know, that's what Metal Gear Solid 1 is. is that's Liquid Snake is is the reason all that happens. Mm-hmm. And two, mainly four. Four is about Liquid Ocelot, like fucking around, doing stuff. Like that. it's 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 very much a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He's very much an active antagonist, like running around all the time yeah, doing shit. Sure. Where Hot Coldman, or it's Hot Coldman and Skullface, a lot of what they do is off screen. They're puppeteers. And it's, I think it's meant to portray more, it, it plays up, it, Again, because who is the villain of Peace Walker? If it's not the CIA, CIA. like the CIA is the <laughs> villain of Peace Walker. So I think that's politically more mature and probably more interesting, but it's harder to make a game around, I think. Mm-hmm. Because you can't, the problem is you can't ever defeat the CIA. <laughs> that's true. Diving now into Skullface's fictional history, I want to first shout out the title card we get for him very late into the Phantom Pain. He's referred to as a ghost without a past, and while he's definitely a phantom, the without a past is doublespeak. He's not without a past like, say, the Joker in The Dark Knight. He very much has a past, but it was actively erased by Nazis, Soviets, the CIA, etc. He's experienced a cultural genocide where anything that could identify his history, including his face, has been burned away. Skullface was born in Transylvania, a part that would be restored to Hungary as decided by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in 1940 during the Vienna Diktat. This would be the start of the erasure of his upbringing, as he'd be subject to the Nazis during the course of World War II and later the Soviets when they took control following the war. 
But back during the war, he was working in a grapeseed oil factory when it was bombed by Allied forces, in which he was both trampled and boiled alive. His parents died, and he was even recommended for euthanization. The only words he remembers of his mother tongue are, let the poor thing die. Otherwise, he has no home country, no language, and now no face. Skullface would survive his injuries and go on to work for the Soviets as spymaster and assassin, though with no love for his ruling regime. He was already a phantom without borders in his moral makeup. He was known for assassinations that weren't obvious assassinations, which would make him a fun, playable character in Hitman. No. (laughs) Evil 47. No. (laughs) Uh, He was a bit of a wild card, though, targeting some of his own perceived enemies, those who led him to lose his mother tongue. Amongst his successful assassinations in this canon is one Joseph Stalin, who appeared to die of a stroke. He would shortly thereafter defect to the West and join the SAS and meet Major David O, as we know him now, Zero. When Zero left the SAS for the CIA, he'd eventually recruit Skullface to join him across the pond as commanding officer of the covert CIA unit, XOF. This was the Phantom to Zero's Fox unit, During Operation Snake Eater and Virtuous Mission, Skullface infiltrated right behind Naked Snake to provide covert support, unbeknownst to Snake, and made sure no trace was left of the CIA's involvement in Selino-Yarsk. XOF would continue to operate as Fox's mirror until Fox was disbanded in the 70s when Zero acquired the other half of the Philosopher's Legacy, thanks to Ocelot, and began building his new outfit, Cypher. Cypher. Cypher was detached from the CIA officially, but Zero knew where to blur the lines so he could get all the approvals he needed to use the U.S. military and intelligence infrastructure. Skullface would be brought in to head the no longer CIA-affiliated XOF under Cypher, acting as Cypher's elite Black Ops team and strike force. Skullface was given a lot of rope as leader of XOF, running whatever operations he wanted to so long as Zero was informed. Zero and Skullface did communicate directly over secured lines, but it was encrypted in a way so that Zero's location would not be known to Skullface in case the latter chose to betray the former. Skullface harbored a hatred for Zero all the same, viewing him in the same light as the Nazis and Soviets before him. By proxy, he also came to loathe Big Boss, whose shit he had to clean up and was now rising as his own military force. Skullface is quoted as saying, their will will be swept out of this world, referring to Zero and Big Boss's competing theories on the boss's will. Before the Ground Zero events, he'd also meet Code Talker, whose work with Metallic Archaea and Vocal Cord Parasites will factor heavily into the Phantom Pain, but we'll save that for later. The survival of Paz at the end of Peace Walker sets up everything for Skullface and MGSV. She's the only one who knew where Zero was exactly, and the situation Big Boss walks into in Camp Omega is part of his master plan to strike at both Zero and Big Boss, having obtained the intel he needed on Zero. We covered the actual Ground Zero's incident last week, and following his attack on Mother Base, Skullface absconded with Huey back to Afghanistan. Zero, however, was not thrilled with this attack on MSF, given Zero's weird affinity for Big Boss and his desire to wield Military Sans Frontiers for himself. So, Zero exiled Skullface to Africa, though he was still allowed to basically do whatever he wanted. It's not unlike how the CIA put Hot Coldman out to pasture in Latin America following Operation Snake Eater. In the gap between Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain, Skullface orchestrated, orchestrated an attack on Zero, who was residing in a heavily fortified building in Hell's Kitchen. Skullface sent Zero a gift a pin badge from their time in the SAS, which was infected with parasite technology that would slowly render Zero an invalid. There was no quick, clean death here for Zero. Skullface had tried to previously sell Zero on his parasite technology, but Zero had refused because he preferred his own competing idea, Fox Die. The attack on Zero and his deteriorating state allowed Skullface to repurpose a lot of Cypher into his own XOF unit. What remained of Cypher itself under Zero was then handed off to Donald Anderson, a.k.a. Sigint, who would begin developing the AIs we know now as the Patriots. We'll cap the history there for now, as the rest is best told as we cover the Phantom Pain. Yeah, I, again, I don't know. I The Zero stuff is never... I just, you don't see enough of him. I don't know. 
I, it, it's, as I said, it was a deliberate choice to have him be an off-screen character. But it's just, it's a weird, it doesn't quite fit with, this is a series that is never, never opposed to having villains show up and monologue and villain Zero never does, <laughs> aside from the couple tapes he's in. But I don't know, I think maybe it would have been too confusing if you had two different enemy groups, but I mean, you basically do anyways. Um, I don't know, I, I, Skullface's backstory is good, I like Skullface, but it's not. It never really pulled on me. Maybe it's just not personal enough because I'm thinking of Liquid now, and Liquid is Liquid has all that obvious animosity towards Snake. That's the you know they they're kind of mirroring him. He's kind of a mirror image of Big Boss. Skullface is supposed to be, but you just don't get that with it. It does. It never really worked for me. Um, it also, I think at this point, it comes off. Uh, uh, another villain of this game who just happened to be in, uh, involved heavily with Operation Snake Eater. Like, you just can't leave it alone at this point. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it, I know it's like the flashpoint for the entire series, but all the games that follow it are are just desperately trying to glom onto Snake Eater to get as much clout from it as they can, including MGS4. And this this isn't mm-hmm. quite as bad as that to me, but it, it, yeah, it, it's if it's it's the only real problem I have with these this this part of the series is is just it, it's like he knew Kojima knew well I'm not doing any better than Snake Eater so I might as well just do derivations of that formula for the rest of time and I don't know I don't know I don't know if the uh, the Skullface stuff works as well as they kind of thought it would be maybe there's some of that was that was cut too because. Mm-hmm. Technically, I mean, theoretically, he's not the like not even I mean, he's not the final boss anyway. But he's not the main villain of the story because technically, the original last boss fight was to be against Liquid, against Eli, and so maybe that would work better if Eli was more framed as the actual threat and Skullface is just like some annoyance. But without that, he's the par like I don't know. Maybe it's the parasites themselves are more threatening than him too. So it it just it doesn't quite fit together, but in a vacuum, I do really like Skullface. It's a fun performance too. It's one of the most one of the most histrionic and crazy and like scene chewing performances in the entire series, which is a high bar. Mm-hmm. We are going to wrap up today by talking about torture and abuse Chico and Paz underwent at the hands of Skullface, which will involve discussions of rape and sexual abuse of minors. If that is not a conversation you want to listen to, this is where you can jump off. We're going to play a music clip and then come back for that discussion. And just a little note for next time, we'll have much lighter fare, so, you know, feel free to jump back in. let's give some space to talk about the abuse that Skullface inflicted on Chico and Paz. The main story as played hints heavily at it, but diving into the audio cassette makes it very explicit as you get to hear what happens. Chico is forced to witness Paz be raped by a soldier, and then after that, Chico and Paz are forced to have sex. Chico himself is a minor and Paz is 25 or so, so Chico is also a victim of rape here. The audio tapes include snippets of the act itself, You can hear panting, punching, sobbing, and some discussion between the two, and a lot of Skullface ordering them around. The audio tape containing this information is also a mission achievement, a reward for completing the level, which kind of makes everything feel a little bit grosser. And then, of course, there's the bomb in Paz's vagina, the quote-unquote Trojan horse, the bomb that blows away Big Boss and Kaz, and can be read as a really bad metaphor for a woman and her womanhood ruining these men's lives. I would not say that is the point, but it is a very valid reading of what transpires on screen. While both die in that second bomb explosion, Paz does have appearances in The Phantom Pain, but as you guessed it, as a phantom. 
She's in a series of delusions experienced by Venom Snake, the lingering pain that's being transposed on him as part of his brainwashing into Big Boss. She's not real, and even her apparition suffers from amnesia, something I think we previously discussed as being a common trope thrown at women characters. By pretty much any definition, Paz is straight up fridged in MGSV. She is killed following brutal torture, rape, and being forced to rape a minor, all for the purposes of serving the plot and male characters specifically. This is supposed to be putting Skullface over as horribly sadistic, and also meant to forward Big Boss's storyline as a reason for the darker turn in his character. Chico did appear in the first drafts of MGSV The Phantom Pain, and there is even concept art of an adult version of him returning, primarily as a villain. He's fully covered in a red cloak with a machete, axe, knife, and hook, and the cloak has a giant peace sign on it, a la the symbology from Peace Walker, and perhaps for Paz. But that's besides the point. Chico is a 13-year-old who is, on audio, depicted as being forced to watch rape and then be raped and participate in his own raping at the hands of Skullface. Perhaps a return in The Phantom Pain could have brought this somewhere, but as it stands, he was essentially Fridge too, killed for the purposes of furthering other storylines. Of my few misgivings of MGSV, this is my primary complaint. Kojima teased taboo subjects, and while I don't think the quiet character is totally successful, nothing there puts me off quite like how Chico and Paz are treated here. It exists for the sake of Big Boss and Skullface, and doesn't really tell us much about the victims in question. I don't think this violence should have been depicted explicitly as it was, even in just audio form. In a totally non-prescriptivist way, I can see the case for a depiction of assault and abuse in art. Sean Collins and Gretchen Falker-Martin, two of my absolute favorite writers and critics, have both talked and written about the value of seeing sexual trauma depicted in film and literature from their standpoint as survivors. I just think in this specific case, it just doesn't serve much and at worst could have been entirely implied in the margins if it needed to be included at all. Yeah, I I think that's where I would agree. I think you can imply that may potentially pause is potentially raped, but it, it's, it's very, um, I don't understand the point of it. Even if like, it makes me glad that Amanda does not show up in this game. Honestly. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Cause I don't know how she would have reacted to, to that. Uh, it also makes, it makes the torture. I don't know. Then immediately getting blown up. It makes it even less meaningful. Cause there's no, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no chance to show. I mean, the, the point, I would agree that the the point of showing sexual violence, depicting sexual violence in art, is to depict is to depict people overcoming it and and recovering over time and like, or grappling with it even yeah. yeah like I mean the the famous Sopranos episode is one of the most I think I think it's a successful portrayal portrayal of sexual violence when Doctor Melfi is is raped because it centers on her choice whether or not to use Tony as an instrument of violence or if she's going to give into that or if she's going to try and rise above it and deal with it on her own terms. But if like if she if that had happened and she'd been immediately killed, it would be like, what's the point? What like what are you what there's no there's no point to that. And it's really I wonder if he had the idea, because this is obviously something that Kojima would have to have okayed or potentially thought of himself. I wonder if they they had this idea and then they couldn't figure out how to have these characters survive it and and move on. So he just is like, oh, they 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 both blow up, just clean it off the board. Which again just makes it more pointless. It's really yeah. yeah it, there's not much good to say about it. I really don't like it. It's like you said. It's it's a far. The quiet stuff is more just like kind of horny, like yeah, it's skeevy, but it's not like I feel like go ahead, go ahead. It fits much more into his sort of relationship with sexuality, which is that he's a thirteen-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has the brain of a of a of a teenager, where he's just like boob, which is fine. Like it's not, you know, I I don't know if it's good, but it's it's more in the realm of harmless sort of objectification. Yeah, it's very different. Like like just levels of this shit. It's a very different level of depicting this kind of. Th- uh, it's not even the same. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very. Um, it's very questionable. I think it's the most probably the most questionable thing that's in the series. Yeah, I think the only mitigating factors, and I'm not saying any of this to defend it, 
is that unlike, say, some rape scenes in various like HBO shows, there's like no titillation involved. Like it's yeah. not supposed to. Um, and that helps because it's all in audio. Um, and it is somewhat in the margins as in like this isn't like you can play just, you know, I'm sure a lot of people really just cared about the main mission. And that was that. Um, and it's just kind of implied there, but it just kind of implied generally torture. Um, and you you would have to listen to the audio cassette tapes to get a little bit of that detail. So um, it's not like something you have to listen to or, you know, witness as a player of the game. I think it would have been better left off as a, a vague implication. I, oh, I agree. Oh, totally agreed. Before we close out, I do want to make one podcast recommendation to the audience. It has little and less to do with Metal Gear, but I think offers tremendous insight and a framework into discussing topics like sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and pedophilia in the context of its depiction in popular art and adaptation. The Lolita Podcast by Jamie Loftus is a 10-episode series about Vladimir Nabokov's most famous work, and more importantly, how deleterious the adaptations of the book are and how harmful the discourse around Lolita always has been including now in 2022, when every few weeks someone will go viral for calling Lolita a red flag for someone to say is their favorite book. The Nobokov story is one of my favorite books ever, as it is for Jamie, and she goes fully into the story itself, but then really goes off on how it has existed as a phenomena in pop culture. She interviews Nabokov scholars, Kubrick scholars, people who have worked on various Lolita productions, but she also has on social workers who work with victims of rape and child sexual abuse, as well as victims themselves. The podcast, all 10 episodes of it, is probably the single most staggering work I've seen in recent years on a single piece of media. She gives all the space possible to the heavy themes of the story and why it's told and the way it is, and how every adaptation not only fails, but has significantly harmed the actresses cast as Dolores or Lolita, in large part due to the men making these films and acting in them. You'll never like Jeremy Irons again, and now I have a complicated relationship with Lana Del Rey, whose music I have loved, but her wielding of Lolita imagery in her own aesthetic and songs is fairly reckless. All that's to say, I wish I could give you something like that for this discussion, but we are limited in the ways we are. If there are ways you feel we could have handled this material better, or you have something to add to this discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support our coverage of Metal Gear Solid V by subscribing to my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, which is, yes, the Lord of the Rings podcast I'm doing. We have converted the Patreon, but it will still be supporting our podcast um, into uh, the end of its coverage. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at my bro, my cat, my pod, and also covering A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF. I have been Brian, and it is no nation we inhabit, but a language. Can't wait to get more into that stuff. That's much more <laughs> enjoyable content. Oh, and trust me, that's going to be like a huge topic of discussion. I'm going to wait till we kind of get to Code Talker, I believe. Okay. Um, but I. We're going to kind of go off on the language and imperialism stuff in there. I think it's great. Well, I mean, it would be nice for me to use my degree for something. <laughs> exactly. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die. I can't wash this blood from our hands.
You can support our coverage of Metal Gear Solid Beer. Beer. <laughs> Jesus. You can- Beer Mahans. Stop eating the cord, please. No.